Well, okay, okay. Welcome to the Randall. No, uh, uh, I'm 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 Randall James, and today uh, we're we're. Oh my god. Okay, we're 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 gonna interview an author, uh, a tabletop RPG author, uh, uh, Keith Baker. Hi, Keith. Hey. Hey. You remember when you wrote Eberron? Uh, yes, yeah, I remember. That was awesome, man. Oh, thank you. Welcome to the RPG Bot Podcast. I'm Randall James, and with me is Tyler Kampstra. Hi, everybody. And also Ash Eli. Coming at you live from Sharn. Welcome, travelers. And tonight we have a special guest with us, Keith Baker. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. All right, Tyler, what is happening? Well, I'm very excited. Uh, we have brought Keith Baker on tonight to talk about his work, uh, most especially on Eberron. Um, and we're we're going to get tips straight from the source on like how to get up and running with Eberron, how to get the most out of the setting. And yeah, like all of the great stuff and all of Keith's various work for Eberron and other things. So Keith Baker, if you're not familiar, uh, he is a world builder, author, game designer um he has a very very long list of credits so just some some of our favorite highlights he created the gloom card game which is a personal favorite of mine strongly recommend it um he worked on the pathfinder inner sea world guide uh way back when pathfinder was still new um he recently created the phoenix dawn command rpg strongly recommend it and he has worked on numerous other rpgs adventures and products over the years dating all the way back at least to third edition he's also the co-founder of together studios and yeah most likely, you know Keith from his work as the creator of the Eberron campaign setting. Yeah, so it's a. I, I want to spend just a moment focusing on this because it's such a like a small piece of life that I had no idea you were involved with until I started to read the card and kind of go through the background. The Gloom card game. So this is actually one of the first games I probably ever played with Tyler uh, because his wife also loves the game and they're like, "Have you ever seen this?" And I'm like, "No, what is this?" And they explain the concept. Here's what we're gonna do. We're each going to adopt a family. We're going to make them miserable. And then we're going to kill them for points. <laughs> I'm always surprised by the number of people who really like Gloom or really like Eberron and don't know, you know, know me for one of them and don't realize I did the other. Yeah, that's so, exactly yeah. my boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I full on did not know that you did Gloom either. And the funny thing is they both came out around the same time. Uh, around 2004. Huh. Wow. See, I think my problem is I discovered both much later. And in, I, I, I guess I say separate settings. I discovered them both from Tyler. So maybe they're not really separate <laughs> settings. <laughs> and yeah, Together Studios, we will have a link in the show notes, but I want to get it out there right now. If you want to go look at all of this, uh, you know, go click the link in the show notes. Well, should we talk some Eberron? Let's talk Eberron. Let's do it. All right. Let's see. So Keith, for folks who aren't already intimately familiar with Eberron, can you give us just like an elevator pitch describing the setting? 
So the the elevator pitch for Eberron is Lord of the Rings meets Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Maltese Falcon. It is a world where, first off, magic is treated as a science and has uh, grown and influenced the development of civilizations. Uh, and it is a world that captures both uh, the element of, you know, the themes of pulp adventure and also noir intrigue. Boy, you know, I shouldn't be surprised that Keith Baker knows how to define his own setting. Right. Yeah. You may have talked about it once or twice. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so I feel like you've are, uh, kind of already hit this, but like how does that how does that separate Eberron from settings like Forgotten Realms or uh Dragonlance or something? So there's a number of things that sort of, when you get deeper into the weeds, make Eberron different from some of the other uh, core-established settings. Like, uh, so Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk, uh, very much sort of try and capture the feel of classic high fantasy Tolkien, that sort of flavor. Eberron, one of the things it tries to do is, first off again, as I said, treating magic as a science, saying if we actually had you know, a power that worked in this way. Because in third edition, in particular, when we created it, arcane magic behaved like a science. It's reliable, it's repeatable. You can learn a spell and you can teach that spell to someone. Part of the thing was, okay, but if we actually had this, if we had it for hundreds of years, would the world still look like Tolkien? Or would the world actually look like something different? And so that's sort of the first point of actually saying, let's look at a world where the sort of core things we think about in D&D like magic actually have shaped the world itself. It's also something where that principle then extends to all kinds of things uh, with each of the, the main species, whether it's elves or gnomes or things like that. We've said, well, okay, if you had no elves, if elves lived for a thousand years, you know, elves might have a really hard time letting go of people. And so the elven religions are all basically about the fact that it's really hard for them to lose people because they're used to having them around for so long. It also, from the start, taking those principles of pulp adventure and noir intrigue, one of the elements of that is trying to put the players very much at the center of the action, the player characters, and really say we want the players to feel like heroes. Now, that doesn't mean you have to necessarily be a good guy, but we're saying you should feel like your characters are remarkable, like within the world you are significant. Uh, because, again, you're the pulp hero. So there's not a lot of very powerful sort of friendly NPCs who are sort of watching out for you. You know, you're sort of the heroes of this age. At the same time, we also have worked in the noir aspect, which means we've got a lot more shades of gray. Things aren't always uh, clear-cut good and evil. There's often situations where there aren't easy answers uh, or where, you know, uh, you know, bad things will happen to good people. Like, that's part of the flavor. And a final thing I'll throw in is because of that, because of trying to keep things sort of more uh, murky, if you will, it is also a setting in which uh, deities don't walk the earth. You will never actually meet a god in Eberron. Faith is about faith. And we don't know for certain if the gods actually exist. And again, that's a very different thing from Forgotten Realms, where, you know, Tyr can come down and punch you in the nose if you're <laughs> a bad guy. Um, and so all of those were sort of things that shifted it away from other existing settings. Yeah, you talk about the shades of gray. Like, I think it's it's interesting to talk about 
um, having different houses with their own interest, having different kingdoms with their own interest, kind of the, the, the background of politics. And I, I guess I don't mean politics in our modern day, but kind of the politics of nations. Uh, you know, I love this idea in describing the races, for instance, that like your, your language and your culture is more likely to be dictated based on where you live than your, than your actual race. Yeah, it's something that we very much did with Eberron is that is part of the point is the different species are very much tied to culture, not to monoculture. There are multiple elven uh, cultures, but also if you're just an elf from Sharn, you're Braylish. You know, I mean, that's going to be what is shaping you generally, unless, of course, you're tied to one of the dragonmarked houses, in which case that's going to be what shapes you uh, as a culture. And very much as you said, part of that point is if you're an elf from Sharn, you may know Goblin and never have learned Elvish because you didn't grow up, you know, speaking it. So that's definitely a important factor. Uh, one of the other things I'd actually note on that is it is also the case that one of the basic things I drop in with Eberron is that uh, the bad guys aren't always monsters and the monsters aren't always bad guys. Uh, this is something that's sort of become more common now, but it was a thing in Eberron from the start where we said orcs, goblins, you know, basically intelligent creatures, sentient mortal creatures are not tied to an alignment. Even dragons. You can have a good red dragon, you can have an evil gold dragon. Uh, and part of that, again, comes back to that shades of gray. You can't just look at someone and say, oh, he's clearly evil. He's a goblin. I can kill him. <laughs> you know that uh, mortal creatures are shaped by their culture and environment. And so nothing is easily predictable in that way. Yeah, one of the things that I <clears throat> that drew me to Aberon in the first place that I thought was really interesting was it was sort of like an, an examination of like, uh, classic fantasy sort of going through industrial evolution and the basically, you know, the shades of gray, all the different competing ideas of those nations eventually culminated in this massive war, uh, and sort of basically like a fantasy version of world war one mixed a little bit with world war two. And, um, you know, Eberron is kind of credited as either making or at least codifying the dungeon punk genre and sort of which is a very cool genre i'm not going to go into it right now but check it out but yeah i that sort of connection of like sort of sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic but it's sort of flipped on its head where sufficiently advanced magic is indistinguishable from technology <laughs> and i just found that really interesting uh and an interesting sort of examination that you don't see a lot of like in forgotten realms and and that's sort of the thing is a lot of other settings, you know, talk about the idea of high magic of, you know, there being these powerful wizards in ivory towers. And one of my questions is if there's an 18th level wizard just hanging around, why aren't they using that power to cure cancer, you know, or whatever it is that you could do yeah. if you could cast witch. So part of Eberron is this idea of what we say is it's wide magic rather than high magic. That the idea is that Arcane magic is widespread, but it's not actually extremely high level. Tying back to that point that we want even low-level player characters to feel like they are significant people in the world. And so basically what we're saying is magic of sort of first to third level is strongly integrated into society, and you will see the streets lit with continual flame. You will see fireballs being thrown around on a battlefield. When you get to fourth and fifth level magic, it is something that people know exists and might have access to, but it's not trivial. Teleportation is not the 
standard means of transportation. But okay, we're not freaked out if someone with a lot of money manages to teleport somewhere. On the other hand, Magic of Fit level and above, excuse me, six level and above, really is that's still legendary, that's still remarkable, and that's where you do get advanced societies, dragons, elves, you know, that uh, that do are essentially more advanced civilizations. But in Eberron, by keeping the magic sort of, again, wide but low, it keeps things from being too sort of uh, too advanced. And generally, Eberron has a sort of feel, we like to say, of sort of late 19th century. You know, we have what amounts to the telegraph in the speaking stone, but we don't have telephone or direct radio. We have the lightning rail, which is essentially a railroad. We have airships, but they're just starting out. Airships were only developed in the last 10 years, and they're not as widespread. So the idea is, again, it is familiar, uh, but it's not modern day. You also brought up the last war, and that is exactly, you know, this key thing we'll talk more about as we go, but that is the idea that as the game begins, it is at the tail end of this massive civil war where there was a peaceful United Kingdom collapsed into civil war, uh, and we're at the end of a hundred years of war that ended when one of the five main nations uh, was completely destroyed in a cataclysm called the Morning. And part of the idea of that is it sort of captures both elements of World War One and World War Two. It is that idea of a major war that had a terrible impact on everyone, but also that did drive scientific advancement, that did, you know, through this, we did create the war forged, we created airships, like... It is something that has changed the world from when uh, it began. And then also you have the mourning as this cataclysmic effect that shocked the world and that drew the war to an end because people are too afraid to fight while they don't know what caused the mourning. So that has the same impact as essentially the nuclear deterrent in our world. You know, that is a sort of Hiroshima event, but with the idea that nobody knows what the bomb was. You know, nobody knows. Was it a weapon? Was it the result of too much war magic? People are afraid to keep fighting because we don't have that answer. So that has put us into this Cold War scenario. So again, like I said, you get the aftermath of World War I, which we can identify with. You get essentially the aftermath of World War II with this nobody's happy with the current situation, but we're afraid to keep fighting. And so that creates an element where there's, uh, you know, still a lot of tension, but it can't break into full war. Yeah, and that, I think, like I said, that that is what really pulled me into this setting. Like, you called it the last war, which, you know, the the uh, World War One was called the war to end all mm-hmm. wars. And that's what I think is really fascinating about the Warforged as well. It's sort of like... Uh, the Warforged are kind of, uh, their experience is similar to what veteran, like they call it the lost generation mm-hmm. for a reason. What veterans of World War I felt when they came home, where they suddenly, they were, they basic, war was basically all they knew because these were young guys who were sent to war and they didn't know how to deal with this society that part of it was flourishing and other parts of it were doing really, really poorly. It was sort of like, what is a future in this world look like when we have such catastrophic power to kill each other? 
And and so uh, what I'll just say is quickly on the Warforged for people who don't know anything about the Warforged. Uh, Warforged are one of the unique races of Eberron that was introduced. Four different races were uh, brought into Eberron, and the Warforged are sentient constructs that were built to fight in the war. So most of them were built as soldiers uh, by House Kenneth, one of the the Dragonmark houses. And very much it is that idea of exploring a character who is built for a purpose but is sentient. You are now released from the war and having the opportunity to determine what is the course of your life, what is your identity. And part of it is that sort of question of you were built for this purpose, but who are you? And and what does it mean to be essentially a living weapon in a world that is no longer at war? And, you know, I'm certainly someone who loves things like Blade Runner, you know, just generally questions of finding identity, uh, you know, and figuring out sort of where you are. So all those are questions that I, I love exploring. And one of the things I really like about the Warforged. Awesome. I, I wanted to make kind of an analogy to, you know, going back to real life, right? The Treaty of Versailles, um, you know, someone very cleverly said, right, this isn't a piece, this is a 20-year armistice. And, and in feel reading the description, uh, at least in the, the fifth edition description of The Last War, mm-hmm. there, there's this idea that's like, yes, there were five nations, we went to war. As part of the treaty, we're now recognizing, what is it? I think it's like 18 nations. 13. 13, mm-hmm. 13. Okay. And then there were two additional nations that were not acknowledged in the treaty. Um, and, and so even like, there's no history to this. Uh, it, it feels like this is potentially temporary. Like how comfortable can you be tying this with the fear of, you know, what the hell happened that actually ended the war? I, I can definitely recognize how, if you're a good storyteller, you can really ramp up the, tish- the tension in this tenuous state. And it is very much the case that, uh, you know, there are so many different possible tension points because part of the point of Eberron is it's up to you what kind of story you want to tell. Do you just want to do Indiana Jones exploring the ruins of Zendrick? Do you want to do, you know, espionage or intrigue as, you know, the King's Dark Lanterns trying to figure out what Andere is up to? Uh, You know, there's a lot of different possibilities. And so just going to what you said, it's very much the case that the Eldine reaches an Andere is a very unstable situation that, uh, you know, happened because of the treaty, but Andere isn't happy with the Eldine independence. Uh, you have Dargoon, the nation of goblins, uh, that again seized land from Seer, the, the kingdom destroyed by the morning. Uh, you have Droam, the unrecognized nation of monsters that, you know, Braylon refuses to acknowledge. And the campaign I've been running right now is on the frontier between Droam and Braylon, and very much sort of playing to that uh, you know, will they be recognized? And so, yeah, there's a lot of different points. I will say something we didn't really talk about uh, when we were talking about magic that I'll just mention quickly is part of the idea of magic being treated as a form of science is that it is part of the economy. It is part of the industry. And uh, in particular, one of the, the sort of pillars of Eberron are the dragon-marked houses. And basically, dragon marks are a hereditary magical trait 
that uh, families, certain families have that allows them sort of influence over a particular type of magic. You have the mark of healing, the mark of warding, the mark of uh, making, and in particular allows them to use tools and rituals that other people can't. And that this has come over the course of history to give these families, which essentially become massive guilds, sort of monopolies over various elements of the economy. And so this sort of fills some of the same position as mega corporations in a cyberpunk game, you know, have these very powerful uh, mercantile guilds. And one of the sort of ongoing themes you can choose to explore is the idea that before the war, the nation was more powerful than the houses. Now, in the aftermath of the war, does any one nation actually have the power to dictate to the houses, or is there now sort of untapped uh, corporate power? So that's just another sort of theme that is you know sort of slid in there. One of the things that I really love uh, that you did with the Dragon Marks, though, is like it is this hereditary trait, but you're not constraining people to have to be an active member of a house in their storytelling in order to have the mark. You explicitly kind of give permission to the storyteller to say, you know, you might be a lost scion. You've been separated forever. You might because of something you did. Yeah, exactly. You might have been kicked out of the house, but you still have the Dragon Mark. So I, I, I love the idea that, hey, I really want this feature, but I don't want the baggage of coming with one of these noble houses. Or very much I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, when we talk about like the the uh, the um, the noir theme, like you can have a lot of fun with that too. Like, oh, okay, uh, a lost scion, and like, oh, you know, this dragon mark. What does it mean? I want to know the family. I want to learn about it. Uh, what are you willing to do to make that happen? The hard-boiled detective <laughs> who renounced his noble birthright. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have actually read a bunch of the Eberron novels. Like it, it's been a while, so uh, some of the the specific details elude me. But uh, there was one ongoing series that followed the same party of characters for a while. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> um, uh, I remember there was a there was a halfling with the mark of healing. Yep, and if I remember the- right. Was that the one? Queen of Stone? Uh, uh, no, so the Queen of Stone is, oh. is the Thorn and Braylon series, which is actually about a spy. Uh, what you're thinking of is one of my series. It's the Dreaming Dark series. And yes, That's you, had, uh, you did have the halfling with the Mark of Healing who wasn't mm-hmm. part of the house. And that was a little bit of a you know, mystery as to, well, why isn't he part of the house? You know, but yeah. We'll have a link in the show notes, folks. Um, yeah, I don't remember if the... Like, I don't remember if it ever got resolved or if I lost track of the series or if I just caught up and the other books hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I remember that being such a cool mystery about the character. And like, I don't remember any of the characters' names except Pierce the Warforge and Pierce the Warforge, Archer. Pierce the Warforge, <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I, I love seeing, like, there's little references in, in all of your Eberron supplements that occasionally reference characters from the novels. I'm like, I remember that line. Why do I remember that line? I know in uh, in some of the books too. Like I think it's Dragon Marked in particular. I think one of the big chapter opening and all the chapters have these big illustrations, and one of them is uh, Lay the Artificer uh, with Pierce, you know, sort of addressing the Council of the Twelve. Uh, so yeah, every now and then they sneak in, and yet what I will say is, uh, while there are forty 
uh, Eberron novels, one of the things we did decide is that the novels are not canon. Really? You know, this was sort of a conscious decision uh, compared to, say, Forgotten Realms, is that it was decided from the start, the novels are things that could happen in Eberron, not things that have happened in Eberron. Because, again, we want the world to be about your characters. You're the heroes of the story. So one of the things I'll note is in uh, my second novel, The Shattered Land, uh, Pierce gets a hold of this artifact docent uh, that's this really cool item. Uh, when we wrote the source book, uh, Secrets of Zendrick, we included the stats for the docent Shira, that item, but no mention of, of Pierce because we're point is, well, in this campaign, you should get it. You know, essentially, if this is Middle Earth, you have to carry the ring. Mm-hmm. So the novels are supposed to be basically inspiring you. And if you want to use characters from them, that's great. But as we've created the books, you know, there, there are things that could happen, not things that have happened. I didn't know any of that, and that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's great. So I don't know if you folks knew this, but I have a dragon mark. Me too. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, nice. <laughs> What's yours? That's the uh, mark of making, right? Yes, I have the greater mark of making. Awesome. I think I know where Randall's I, about to go with this. All right. My, mine lets me summon this ad. <laughs> <laughs> The weirdest aberrant dragon mark. It did not occur to me that you were going to whip out an actual dragon mark and therefore make what I said very lame. Uh, I kind of saw it coming. (laughs) It didn't want to spoil it. I'm I'm, I'm glad you did that, that, Keith. That was was beautiful. Perfect. It was so lame. It was great. He's usually good at those. So the fact that he kind of beefed it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right. So your dragon mark is cooler dragon mark, <laughs> yeah it's a pretty underwhelming dragon mark there randall um so we touched on the warforged a bit but we didn't really touch on some of the other races that are native to eberron uh specifically the ones that people might not be as familiar with like they're the classics obviously but um kalishtar and shifters are ones that are unique to eberron so why don't we talk a little bit of do you want to explain a little bit about what is up with those races sure um, so yes, when we created Eberron and decided we wanted to add some new species, uh, that people could play. So one of the things again is that we did sort of add the, the species you're all familiar with halflings elves, you know, do have some interesting different flavor halflings, uh, mm-hmm. you know, infamously, are uh, ride around on dinosaurs. Love so it. you can have your halfling barbarian riding a raptor. Uh, but we added four <laughs> species that are, uh, you know, sort of unique to the setting at the time it came out. The Warforged, who are sentient constructs created for the war. Um, shifters, who are sort of uh, essentially like thin-blooded lycanthropes. You know, instead of fully transforming, uh, a shifter has a sort of bestial aspect and they can temporarily sort of draw on that and become more bestial for a short period of time, a little bit like sort of a barbarian's rage, although it can stack with that if you're a shifter barbarian. And so the shifters have that sort of primal connection and that sort of animalistic uh, aspect. Changelings are essentially, and part of the idea was basically playable doppelgangers. So changelings have the ability to shift their physical appearance. And... 
that's something where it's very much up to you. We've described a number of different sort of shaped uh, changeling subcultures and how they choose to use those abilities. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's part of the fun of it is to think about, again, what is the cultural impact of a, a culture where physical appearance is really a matter of choice. And so there's a lot of interesting things you can do with the changeling. Um, as well as getting all your mystique stories, you know, in there. <laughs> uh, and then the final species is the Kalistar. And the Kalistar, part of the point is uh, psionics, especially in third edition, you know, had always been part of Dungeons and Dragons, but usually felt very tacked on. And so in creating Eberron, I wanted psionics to have a clear place in the setting. And yet also to be something that people who don't like psionics didn't feel sort of it was forced in in the way that like dark sun initially had a very strong psionic aspect and if that wasn't something you enjoyed you're sort of stuck with it so with uh eberron the idea is that you have the continent of sorlona where psionics is more it's their answer to arcane magic you have wide psionic uh you know civilizations there uh since the default campaign sort of starting point is corvair you can play people who come from sorlona and thus have psionic abilities uh, or you can play the kalashtar and kalashtar are essentially human but they have a psychic connection to essentially a spirit of dreams and uh in particular the default is that your your spirit is a rebel spirit that is sort of cast out of the dream world and is sort of locked in a conflict with spirits of a nightmare uh that may or may not have a larger role in your game depending on the where your campaign is going but so as a kalistar you have a sort of innate psychic talent and you have this connection to an otherworldly spirit and so that's sort of a fun thing to explore yeah, so it's it's interesting you bring up this like the the dreams versus nightmares. Let's talk a little bit about you know the planes of Eberron. It was uh, you know remarkable when it came out in that Eberron they they chose to make it uh, you know to to let it have its own unique cosmology and to not just be sort of squeezed into the Great Wheel. And so Eberron has thirteen planes. Uh, from the start, the idea was that the planes have a significant impact on the world. You have what are called manifest zones, where a particular plane bleeds through into the world and has an ongoing effect. And those are things that often then are basically natural resources or supernatural resources. So cities will be built in manifest zones where there's a useful magical effect they can harness. Like in the city of Sharn, uh, which has these mile-high towers, part of the point is its connection to the plane Serenia that actually lets them build these massive towers without them falling over um, because it enhances magic of levitation and flight. Oh, and then also planes will become coterminous or remote. They sort of phase in and out of alignment. So again, that's something that is a tool the game master can choose to use of, oh, in this campaign or in this particular session, Mabar is coterminous, and that means we're going to be dealing with a lot of undead uh, because they're all enhanced by being close to the endless night. So each of the planes embodies a particular concept. So rather than being tied to alignment uh, or things like that, each one is sort of an idea. There's the plane of war, the plane of the eternal battleground. Uh, Serenia is essentially uh, ultimately the plane of peace. Uh, You have um, chaos, order, 
and you do have you know the uh, the plane of dreams. Although part of the idea is that the plane of dreams, due to events that happened in history, has been sort of cut off and thrown out of alignment with the other planes. So the only way to reach it is through dreams. And so thus you have this conspiracy that is coming and essentially trying to manipulate the world through their dreams. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. The planes were not strongly developed. Basically, right from the start, we had this cool idea. We had, you know, description of all the planes. We had the idea of manifest zones and how they affected it. But they never really got that developed over the course uh, of the setting. I always wanted to see a Planes of Eberron book. That was one I was constantly agitating for, and it just never got made. So in exploring Eberron, my first big book for the DMs Guild, uh, I do finally get to go into more detail about the planes and really sort of share my vision of them. Well, uh, that feels like Um, a great transition. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, that feels like a good transition to the 5th edition era, like Eberron in the 5th edition. Yeah, okay. So, jumping back, not that far in our Wayback Machine, um, I believe it was 2018, Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron releases on DM's Guild. Like, at the time, DM's Guild is very new. Like, this is this is a site that a lot of people in the D&D community weren't familiar with yet. There wasn't a lot of content on there. And then all of a sudden, like... Keith Baker graces it with legitimacy. <laughs> um, yeah, so like Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron comes out. It's got uh, it's got the Eberron races. It has the Artificer. It's got a bunch of setting information for Eberron. And like people have been crying for settings to come back since 5e dropped. So all of the Eberron fans, including me, very, very excited about this. Um, and then... Like a year later, we had Eberron rising from the last war. Um, and I'm I'm just curious, like, what's some of the context around those coming out so close together and like with so much overlap in their contents? So first of all, I want to step back for one moment just to call out another unique part of the setting that you brought up that. Uh, some people may not be familiar, which which is the Artificer. That was one of the other unique things that Eberron introduced into Dungeons & Dragons when it first came out, which the idea of magic being a science and the Artificer essentially being an arcane engineer. So someone who approaches magic through the medium of tools. And so that's something we introduced in third edition. And, you know, again, as you said, that was something we brought a working model of it into fifth edition. Basically, I had been talking to Wizards about doing something with Eberron uh, since 5th edition came out. And every year I'd be like, can we do something with Eberron? Hey, how about Eberron? You want to do something with Eberron? And eventually, basically, Jeremy gave me the go-ahead to develop the Wayfinder's Guide for um, the DM skill. And that was something I did entirely on my own. You know, so that was just me working at home, uh, not working initially with Wizards of the Coast. As it got close to the end, uh, you know, I did coordinate more. Uh, and and I say entirely on my own. I, I would, you know, like in talking <laughs> about things like the Dragon Marks, I certainly shot like, here's my, my concept port to Jeremy, you know, got feedback and such. And as I said, as we got to the end, Jeremy, Chris, you know, people got sort of more involved and the uh, species in particular got like a, a blow up, if you will, from, um, you know, uh, all sorts of people. Uh, but largely, as I said, that was something I wrote independently. And that 
it was actually very much, while things came out relatively close together, it's not as close as you think. And the basic point is it was the success of Wayfinders on the DMs Guild that actually is what convinced Wizards to make Rising from the Last War. Like they were interested in it as a concept, but basically Wayfinders proved when it became, you know, the best selling thing on the DMs Guild that there was an audience for this. So part of it is part of the reason why there is some overlap is because actually, like I said, it happened pretty quickly. They were like, okay, we want a book. <laughs> um, and so Wayfinders, you know, essentially introduced the races, which they wanted to keep it introduced the dragon marks, which they wanted to keep like, you know, the, the core book had to assume that people wouldn't necessarily use the DMs guild. Uh, and that therefore it had to repeat sort of the most crucial things, uh, that everyone would need. Now, what it added that wasn't in the wayfinders guild, uh, is particularly when you get into chapters four and I think five, uh, it added a host of monsters converting all the sort of unique Eberron monsters to fifth edition. And it added a big chapter about, uh, creating adventures and you know with a detailed look at all the factions with a lot of like maps with a lot of tables so basically it put it expanded on what was in uh wayfinders but it built on what was in wayfinders because that's the foundation of eberron so i mean basically it is in many ways wayfinders guide but bigger you know wayfinders plus because Again, we wanted all that basic stuff. There are a few things that were uh, sort of expanded and improved because part of the point is, like I said, I mainly did Wayfinders on my own. So once I was working with Jeremy, with all the people at Wizards of the Coast, we did do you know a closer revision and development cycle because again, they have developers, you know, so yeah. <laughs> a closer development cycle on things like the Dragon Marks, on things like the Artificer. So those did evolve from that first version i did the warforged in particular uh went through some significant changes um from my original wayfinders version one of the things that was added in uh rising as well that i really liked was the idea of group patrons uh which is the idea of when you're playing an Eberron game, you can't just say we're a party of adventurers just meeting in an inn on a random thing. But you could say, no, we're actually Dark Lanterns working for, you know, Brayland. Or uh, we're chroniclers for the Kornberg Chronicler you know, and Chronicle. You know, we're basically investigative reporters, you know. Or we're the Argentum, you know, trying to recover relics for the Church of the Silver Flame. Uh, that basically you can stop and say, like, if this was a movie what's the theme of the movie and that's what group patrons are about is the idea of you don't have to use them but do you see a theme that introduces I mean, that ties things together i've never done it but i've often thought about doing like a soprano style uh boromar clan campaign where you know or uh vlad taltosh from the Stephen bruce books you know the idea of some guy playing a, a boromar underboss and you know the the group playing his enforcers and such trying to hold a piece of territory uh in in lower shard um so yeah group patrons sort of suggest a lot of ideas like that that you could follow i've been meaning to to uh, run a game with the group pa patrons mechanics because yeah well like you said they're a fantastic storytelling device one of the things that i i want to call out that i don't know if folks at home will realize when they're thinking through all of the content that's come out for 5e 
Um, you know, we, we recently got Dragonlance, for instance, but Dragonlance is, there's a bit of setting, a bit of a source book. It's mostly an adventure book. Uh, we got the Spelljammer content. Uh, a lot of great monsters, a lot of great ships. There's reasonable source material, but a, a good bit of it is really dedicated to the adventure. Eberron is, is one of two full settings books that we've gotten in 5e and with one D&D announced, it might be one of only two that are ever made for 5th edition mm-hmm. uh, as like first party material. I agree. Uh, I feel very lucky that we had that opportunity that, you know, there are a number of things in Rising that do not only just introduce what was already there to people who don't know it, but that do even build and expand uh, on the world in interesting ways. In particular, the more dwarves were always, uh, you know, sort of one of the less interesting elements of the setting. And in developing it, we came up with a whole sort of expanded storyline for them that I really like and that uh, makes them much more compelling uh, to explore and play. So, yeah, you know, considering, again, we have this you know 300 page book almost that really digs you know into the setting in all sorts of interesting ways compared to dragon or spell jammer uh it's lucky that we did get that now of course the counter to that is that we don't have a official eberron adventure that goes as deep as either spell uh spell jammer or dragon goes back to what i was saying before they should release an adventure and a setting book but i'm not gonna talk i'm not gonna go back to my discussion on dragon <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I i don't know if you caught the episode but i will say that uh ash at one point essentially advocated why can't this be more like eberron <laughs> i you know, I'm I there. as i, I said, said i i love setting books uh i think the fear yeah, is that i mean the ultimate risk, I'd say, is is the fear that a big setting book is only of interest to a game master and they want to make something that has the most value to the most people. I don't know. Yeah, um, although, I mean, not a lot of players yeah. are buying the adventure books and reading them as they play either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you hope not, at yeah. least. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the risk is that, like, with the setting, like, most people just kind of just want to play out-of-the-box adventure stuff. But there are there are some of us, me included, who likes just having a setting put in front of us that we can make our own adventures out of because I find that more interesting. And that also, I will say, was always one of the core design principles of Eberron. Uh, I am a person who has always played homebrew, and I definitely get the, a lot of people don't have time to design an entire world, you know, and so you want something you can work with. But Eberron from the very beginning was built on the principle that this should be something as a game master you use as a source of inspiration, not something that stops you from telling the stories you want to tell. And so that's part of the point of the novels not being canon. You know, what we've always said from the start is, first off, there's certain mysteries we're never going to answer officially, and that even if we do, you know, you should always feel free as a dungeon master to change any element of the setting for your campaign. That it is something we want to help you make your story, not something that you should feel like, well, I can't do that because, you know, this book says me. Yeah. Or the players at the table, it's like, well, that's not canon. We can't have right. that. The, yeah. the biggest example of this is The Morning. 
of yeah, in, that's what I was gonna uh, say. <laughs> you know, the the core of the campaign is the last war, uh, and four years before the the default opening of the campaign, the morning destroys the nation of Seer, and to this day we don't know what caused it, and that that's what's holding war at bay. Uh, but the fact is that we don't tell you what caused it. And we have made a stance. It's been 20 years now. We're not going to tell you what caused it. Uh, we can tell you what might have caused it. And we have given lots of possibilities. But the point is that one of the things I love is when I play in someone else's Eberron campaign, and I have, I don't know what caused the morning, even though I made the setting, because I don't know what they've decided. And that's the kind of thing we want is... We want it to be something that inspires you, that makes you say, oh, and my campaign in the morning is going to be caused by the Lord of Blades, you know, uh, but that that that's that's still up to you to decide that answer. We don't just answer it for you. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, too often in a lot of um, setting books, the designers feel the need to give you the answer to a lot of things. And I think uh, a lot of a lot of people have been taking sort of I've learned that lesson from Eberron that it's better to sort of leave things a little bit more up in the air. Like I've been reading the Ravenloft book recently, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which I would argue is the third setting mm-hmm. book to um, for fifth yep. edition. And uh, they talk about how Azalan, Azalan from uh, Darkon uh, ascended out of his out of his uh his domain but they don't tell you how he did that or if he actually succeeded and i was like oh sounds a little bit like Eberron. (laughs) (laughs) so and they kind of encourage you to come up with your own answer to that i do appreciate i was gonna say it, it feels like a real it's the challenge of the medium right that we when we run campaigns we want to be storytellers when you write a setting book like this you don't you're not trying to be the storyteller, at least I think what we're arguing for and what Eberron does well is I don't want to be the storyteller in this moment, but I want to give you all the tools to tell the best story possible so that when you sit down to write your campaign, you could tell that story. And then when you write your next campaign on top of the tools, you tell a completely different story. I can imagine folks having difficulty, you know, when, when you're thinking about something like Dragonlance, like, okay, what am I doing right now? Am I, building the world or am I telling the story? And, and yeah, it definitely feels like everyone gets that split right. Mm-hmm. And and that's very much uh, what we were trying to do. You know, part of the point is people say, oh my God, the world's, you know, facing so many apocalyptic disasters. And what we're saying is, well, no, it's facing as many as you want it to be facing. We introduced the Lords of Dust. We introduced the Dalkir. We introduced the Dreaming Dark. And part of the point is those are all cataclysmic threats, but you get to decide which ones are actually happening now. You know, from the start, the point is it's a toolbox. You pick the tools out that fit your story. On a very small scale, I'll point out that one of my favorite just little things in a book is in the City of Stormreach source book. Uh, we talk about the coin lords, the rulers of the um, the town, and we basically say, well, here's five backgrounds. You know, one of them runs the distillery, one of them does this. And then we say, and one of them is tied to the Emerald Claw, one of them is a Rakshasa spy, one of them, and among other things, there's five of them, and we give you six options. And part of the point is, it's a mix and match. Which do you, which one do you think is a Rakshasa spy, or is any of them a Rakshasa spy? You know, that's up to you. And so the point is, we're not asking you who may not have any time to just completely make things up. 
Or say, here's a bunch of options. Mix and match. Make something, you know, again, as a player, I don't know which it's going to be. Or if you've just made up your own because you do have other inspirations, you don't have to use any of those. So it is all that matter of wanting to give uh, any game master enough that they can just make their, you know, they don't have a lot of time. They want to just make something. But while at the same time, you know, sort of, again, giving you more options than you need so you can pick which ones you want. That's awesome. Um, All right. So let's see. So we've hit on Rising from the Last War quite a bit. Uh, and obviously that was the very last thing ever written forever on ever and never again shall there be more text. Uh, so 2020 lies, <laughs> lies. lies and slander 2020, you give us exploring Eberron. Um, now me, like I, when that came out, like I, I was very excited. I'm like, wait, we're, we're getting more <laughs> like considering we've gotten one book for every setting except Ravenloft, uh, one book for every setting in five E the fact that there is still ongoing support for Eberron is really, really exciting. Um, so can you tell us what's in exploring Eberron? Just a quick summary. Well, first, just to clarify, part of the point is there is an ongoing support from Wizards of the Coast. What it is, is that Wizards of the Coast chose to, uh, you know, Wizards of the Coast owns the intellectual property of Eberron. Like, Eberron is their setting. And until 2020, no one could use it. You know, the only Eberron books that could exist were those directly produced by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, when uh, they released Rising from the Last War, they also unlocked it on the DMs Guild. So anybody can, on the DMs Guild, create new Eberron content. So that includes me, but anybody can. And a lot of people have created interesting uh, sort of fan content that's worth checking out. Uh, but my first book was Exploring Eberron, which is, again, about 280 pages, I think. It's a huge book. And part of what was great about it is it was an opportunity for me to write about all the things that I've always wanted to write about in Eberron, but never had an opportunity to do in an official book, such as, for example, The Plains, where to me, The Plains of Eberron were always one of the more interesting aspects of the setting, but never really developed. So I talk at great length about The Plains. One of the things is the idea of aquatic civilizations, because to me, you have always, again, it's part of D&D, you have the Suwagan, you have the Lakatha, you know, you have these sentient, intelligent, in some cases, more intelligent than human species, you know, civilizations that just don't seem to affect the world very much. And I'm always like, Mm. do they have political relationships? Do they trade? Like, what's going on? Like, do they just let you sail over them? That's one of the things that's covered in Exploring Eberron is the Thunder Sea, uh, which is sort of the the, um, ocean that players have the most sort of reason to travel over. Um, beyond that it just goes deeper and, and sort of adds my own takes to things like the unique religions of Eberron to all the species that we talked about the Warforged, the shifters changelings and just also going deeper into that concept of magic in the world a couple other things it, it builds on are the uh, dwarves as i said because we added this cool twist to them in rising but then didn't go very deep into it the nation of Droem which is basically a nation of creatures which in most settings are treated as monsters you know so this is a nation of medusas gargoyles harpies ogres and it is as we mentioned briefly earlier you know a nation that has not yet been recognized by the other nation but it's a very interesting place because it's just presented 
presenting things that are traditionally monsters in a very different way, trying to work together and use their abilities to build a nation. And then one other that I would mention would be the Dakani goblins. And that is, again, the idea that in Eberron, the goblins had a very advanced civilization that dominated the continent of Corvair before humanity came to it. And uh, there is still a remnant that has held on to all the traditions and techniques of that ancient civilization called the Dakani, and this digs deeper into that. So those are all sort of cool things in uh, Exploring Eberron, and it has stats for uh, playing goblinoids, it has stats which, you know, now they've improved in the the regular system at the time, Uh, and it has stats for playable gnolls as well, just because they're part of Drawing. Awesome. I want to get uh, clarity real quick. So you were saying that with the release of Rising in the Last War, anyone could publish on uh, DM's Guild using Eberron as a setting. So when you wrote Wayfinder's Guide, did you have special permission to use the yes. Eberron content? Okay, yep. cool. That makes sense. Um, and then even the, the novelization, uh, the novelizations, is this something that you also have to get permission or do you, do you have yes. the right? Like, can you, okay, gotcha. I haven't written a novel for 10 years uh, and I would love, uh, you know, many of my novels, the stories aren't really completely finished. Uh, but at the moment you can write about Eberron on the DMs Guild with game content. Uh, it is not currently possible to publish Eberron novels. I, I would love it if they changed that policy, but at the moment, no novels. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, they, they did the same thing, I think, with the Ravenloft, too, is they opened it on the DMs Guild for people to write content for it, but you can't write novels for Ravenloft either. So. Yep, but it's better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's something, I guess. Keith Baker, <laughs> ever the optimist in this moment. <laughs> Maybe always, I don't know. <laughs> Um, awesome. So we had Exploring Eberron in 2020, and then 2022, we got Chronicles of Eberron. Right. So what I will say is in following um, Exploring Eberron, I started working on a book called Frontiers of Eberron Threshold. And we can talk about that a little later. But basically, that was what I was planning to be my next sort of big Eberron book. And basically, I was hoping that was going to come out in 2021. But basically, just a lot of real life stuff, uh, not to mention a pandemic, uh, basically just got in the way when I was about halfway through the book. And so that has been on hold since then. Um, With Chronicles of Eberron, I have continued to write about Eberron over the years, not game material, because legally I couldn't, but just writing articles and ideas. And Chronicles is sort of an anthology where I took my favorite things that I had written expanded them, brought them up to date, and worked with my friend Image and Gingel uh, to also add the concrete mechanical material that I couldn't add previously because, again, it wasn't uh, legally possible. And so Chronicles is this definitely a sort of very much a, a miscellany of different things that I find interesting. So as I'd covered the, uh, the, the broad planes, the unique planes in exploring Eberron, Chronicles deals with the astral plane. And part of the point is, okay, it's just big and right. Well, you know, blank, right? Well, what makes it interesting? And so here's how is the astral plane interesting in Eberron? What makes you want to go there? It goes to the barren sea. So, you know, exploring new seas 
it looks at the dark six. You know, we looked at sort of the other major religions. The dark six are traditionally the bad guys of the Eberron religion scene, and this gets a lot deeper into each of them. Why would you worship one of them? What are the you know the cultures that do? Uh, what do they see in them? And it is a blend of things that are very player-facing, new gnome cultures, more about the Valinar elms, and uh, there's everything you want to know about nobles and more, you know, very much with the idea of, so you're playing a noble, you know, a character with a noble background, what does that mean? Or can, you know, what does it mean if you become a noble over the course of a campaign? So a lot of things like that, but then also a lot of very DM-facing material. So the Dalkir uh, Avash, not, or not, you know, the Dalkir Avash, a lot about the overlords who are the sort of ultimate fiends of Eberron, uh, a lot about different types of undead, um, and then also just things like how do I run a session zero for Eberron? How do I start a campaign? So as I said, it's a, a big blend of just sort of interesting things you might want to drop into a campaign, but also advice about how do I run a campaign? You know, how do I handle certain things? So it sounds like a really useful supplement if you're sitting down wanting to do the homebrew and you you want to explore more of Eberron. Um, we have some folks who participate in our Discord. It sounds like they spend a lot of time in the world of Eberron uh, and I uh, they're listening right now. Oh, <laughs> because when they listen to it, I would have just said it. Is the yeah? Um, live from this recording. Yeah, that's what they're, they're, they're listening to it right now. It's like, how did he know? Oh no! <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, I. Uh, it is the case that that's the thing to me with Chronicles is Chronicles doesn't have a single theme, but what I want with Chronicles is it for it to be all the things you never thought you actually wanted to put in an adventure and you suddenly discover you do. You know, it's it's just a lot of different things you may not have thought about, but hey, think about them. They're cool. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I want this. I have to have it. <laughs> cool. Uh, there, there's some uh, There's some cool character, like we haven't tucked on we haven't touched on character options in any of these really, except for the artificer and the races, but um, yeah, there's some really cool subclass options in these as well. I believe Chronicles had the, uh, the dark petitioner rogue, mm-hmm. which is a think arcane trickster, but divine spell list. And you get your power from the dark six. Like the mechanics are awesome. Oh, I love that. <laughs> like, that's so cool. And, yeah. That's so- and that's basically is there's a lot of options associated with the dark six from subclasses. There's also the, um, I want to say it's it's ambition domain, but I could be wrong about it. But it's the domain of the I think shadow, that's right. and part of it is about that idea that that characters tied to the dark six. You know, Batman would totally be like you know tied to the Fury. You know that mm-hmm. it's it's sort of there's room to play sort of antihero characters that even though these are sort of sinister forces, that they are forces that players can work with and can create a lot of interesting character ideas. So you mentioned it earlier, and maybe we should touch on it now, uh, the thing that you're still working on, right. Frontiers of Eberron Threshold. So, so what can we expect from so that? So Frontiers of Eberron is basically a... Uh, most of the books about Eberron focus on a very wide area. You know, they focus on the world as a whole or the continent of Corvair. Uh, Frontiers was the idea of going completely separately and focusing on a very small 
part of Eberam, focusing on this border between mm. Brayland and Droam, a region which, again, Brayland doesn't recognize Droam. So, you know, it is, we call it a border, but it's an unrecognized border. Part of the idea is sort of actually drawing on a lot of tropes that are traditionally sort of Western tropes, you know, of this one slingers at high noon, you know, we've got the lightning rail <laughs> and, you know, you're out uh, on this, this sort of semi-lawless uh, territory and you get to sort of play with with a lot of those themes. Part of it is it does something we actually I really like to do, which is focusing on a particular location. In uh, Rising from the Last War, we focus on the city of Sharn, but Sharn is, you know, essentially fantasy New York. You know, it's this vast city that you could run entire campaigns in uh, and never see the same place twice. Here we focus on the city of Threshold, the sort of last stop between Brayland and Droam, uh, which is a small mining town. And part of the point is that the actions of a campaign or of a small group of players can really shape and change the town. And this is something where I have been running a campaign in Threshold on my Patreon for the last two years. And I was temporarily put on hold because I ran a Spelljammer Eberron crossover campaign. Uh, but I'm getting back. We're just starting essentially season two of Threshold, probably in February. And uh, basically the way it works is it's a campaign where anyone who's a patron can see recordings. But basically uh, we set the date and then anyone who's a patron can apply to have a chance to play. So the story is ongoing, the characters are ongoing, there's a cast of 10 characters, but the players change each session. You know, anybody has a chance to get a seat at the table. And it's been a very interesting oh, that's experiment. That's really cool. uh, so basically, I have been playing in Threshold for, you know, ever since I started working with it. But as I said, the book... Uh, I'm about halfway done with it. I have a sort of gazetteer. I have a lot of information about Threshold itself. Uh, but now the question is, you know, can I find the time to go back and, and finish that book? Uh, and I would like to at the moment. I don't, especially with all the other things that are going on right now. There's a lot of sort of uncertainty about what will the D&D world look like in two months from now. And so with that, I can't yep. actually give you a date on uh, when I expect uh, Frontiers to be out. But it is still the project I'm working on and I'm very excited about it. But if you want a sneak peek... We can respect that. Yeah. If you you want a sneak peek, uh, definitely jump on my Patreon. One of the things I'll note is one of the interesting things with Frontiers is because it's on the edge of Droam, you can play a lot of traditionally monstrous races such as uh, Medusas, Wargs, Harpies, Gargoyles, and Gnolls. And uh, I've already released a preview of the Medusa species uh, for patrons, and I'll be releasing other content from Frontiers uh, in the months ahead. I want to say a couple things. One, uh, hey, link to Keith's Patreon in the show notes. Go take a look. Uh, Two, uh, Keith, I don't know if you've seen Tyler's book, Monstrous Races on DMs Guild. No, I have not. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So so let me tell you, let me tell you kind of a funny story. Okay. So... uh, um, I really liked Savage Species from third edition. Um, and like I hang out a lot of places that talk about D online, and a lot of people were saying, like, we want to play monsters, we want to play monsters. I'm like, fine, I'll write a book. <laughs> so I, I I wrote a book called Monsters Races. I converted everything in the monster manual to playable races. Oh, I have heard of this, yes. Yeah, yeah, that was me. Um nice yeah, work. so uh 
Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I was an adamantine bestseller. I was the top thing on DMs Guild for like a month and a half straight. You know what knocked me off? <laughs> Exploring it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, well deserved. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I remember that. And I, I'll have to go back and, and check it out. Yeah. This is just Tyler flexing for a yeah. uh, Sorry to crush you, you know, I mean, yeah. No, it's fine. <laughs> like, it, I haven't updated it to keep pace with changes to race design as 5e has evolved. So, like, if you go back and read it, some of it feels a little bit dated. Like, there could be improvements. But, yeah, people people still really enjoy it. And, you know, sometimes you want to play a level 2 Tarask fighter. No, absolutely. I want to play a Tarask. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly yeah. with frontiers part of it is not only uh playing the characters but also uh, a lot of about their culture within Droam and how they interact with one another and with the world so you know it has the the, the playable stats but also a lot of it is just about what does it mean to play a medusa in Eberron, you know and in Droam that's really cool <laughs> i i'm excited to see what you do with that so i'll be a we'll compare notes I'll after the fact. well I think we should journey into a new frontier this ad break. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we've we've talked a lot about the Eberron setting. We've talked about the different new resources that are available that folks can get either as first party or directly through DMs Guild. Uh, we've talked about the novelizations that folks can go get. So there's a, a lot of ways that I can learn about the world. There's a lot of ways that I can read examples of stories in the world. Now, I want to play in Eberron or I want to tell a story in Eberron. Um, so I think I, w- I want to lead off with kind of hitting reset and, and asking this question. What are the types of stories or experiences I can give in Eberron that are really unique to Eberron as a setting compared to other 5e settings that are available to me? Well, I'll, I'll say one of the things that was in Wayfinder's Guide that didn't make it into Rising uh, that I liked was uh, I had three different sort of campaign starting points that I called them as sort of, okay, you want to just kick off a campaign. And essentially, that's kind of what became the group patrons, because it was that same idea of this is where tell the players, this is our starting point. This is the flavor of our campaign. Make a character who fits this. And so I'll bring those up just because they kind of do fit, uh, you know, answer the question in a way. So you had uh, all of them starting in the city of Sharn. Uh, but the first were the Clifftop Adventurers Guild. And the Clifftop Adventurers Guild is Indiana Jones. It's saying you are professional adventurers. You are going to be globetrotting, going to the most exotic, dangerous places. And you're going to be seeing crazy things. You're going to the ruins of giant civilizations. And you're, you know, trying to keep the Emerald Claw from getting the Orb of Don Lazar. And, you know, we're traveling <laughs> by the Red Line. Yeah, we're traveling by the red line and we're we're going, you know, to new and exotic places every time and things are high stakes and over the top. And that part of the point of the Clifftop Adventurers Guild is to be, again, hope adventure. You know, one of the things I've said is the only thing better than having a fight on the, uh, you know, deck of a crashing airship is if it's on fire. You know, it's like, how can you you really add more adventure to your adventure? And um, so part of the point of the, the Clifftop uh, starting point is to say you are 
big damn heroes. You know, you are sort of recognized uh, celebrity adventurers, essentially. And why are you in it? What are you trying to do? You know, uh, what's your drive? That was one idea. And so, again, that's very much on the pulp end of the spectrum. One of the other ideas is uh, Calistan. And Calistan is one of the worst, grittiest, basically clifftop is, as the name implies, all the way at the top of the Towers of Sharn. Calistan is all the way at the bottom in a shitty little hole where you never see the sun and people are pissing. You know, the, the piss from people on the top levels of the tower comes down on you like rain. And it is uh, very much inspired by things like Gangs of New York, or, you know, it's it's gritty, it's dark, and uh, one of the, the challenges put to people making their characters is, why are you living here? Like, are you just, <laughs> this is where you've grown up and it's the only place you know? Are you a wizard who was thrown out of House Kenneth for your, you know, sort of unorthodox experiments and you get to do what you want here? Are you a fugitive? Uh, you know, but that again... Calistan is very much, uh, I like, you know, saying, forget it, Jake, it's Calistan. You know, it is very much on the noir intrigue side of this is where there's not a lot of clear good and evil. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, it's it's more about uh, we're just trying to survive and we're trying to make life a little better here. And it's more, you know, mystery is the drive instead of, you know, again, I'm going to some place to get the thing that's going to save the world. Um, then in the middle of that, I had the Morgrave University adventure, which is essentially, let's be student adventurers, you know, coming of age in, in a university in a magic world. And part of the thing is uh, Morgrave University is is the, the tomb robbers, you know, uh, programming is what we're saying. So, you know field trips involve uh going down into the intercity and things like that but sort of a little more lighthearted, playing with that idea that this is a world where magic is part of everyday life like well okay you're taking sorcery 101 you know what's that like um and so between the three of those you're sort of seeing the spectrum of high action adventure gritty dark uh sort of uh you know almost realism if you will uh and then let's play with the idea of everyday magic in a sort of more fun casual how can we uh experience that i'll say a bunch of other things that you know are interesting the fact that gods don't walk the earth means that ebron is a place where you can very much deal with themes exploring heresies schisms crusades fought for the wrong reason because you can't just get a deity dropping in to straighten things out. Yeah, nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, and and that, <laughs> well, that's intentional. Might, there might be swords. That, again, <laughs> you have questions that there aren't easy answers to. Uh, but just the other thing I'd say is look down that list of group patrons. You've got the idea of, again, investigative reporters. You've got that idea of we're a military strike force. You've got that idea of we're spies. You know, there's all sorts of stories that work well because of the structure. Uh, just quickly going to the novels, I love my uh, the Thorn of Brainland series, you know, starting with the Queen of Stone because it very much is, you know, James Bond in a fantasy world um and it just plays with that in an interesting way nice now i, I really want to take a look at this i'm actually i'm 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on a reading kick where I'm trying to read the fantasy novels associated with settings mm-hmm. just to understand the settings better. Uh, and honestly, actually, I didn't realize the novelizations existed till we started this conversation. So I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google would have solved that one for me, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I have another question that I want to ask you, like, how do we nail like the pulp noir feeling? Cause I know like Ash and I were talking about this ahead of time. Like I was thinking the way to do this is to do on my fifties radio voice. And that's how I'm going to get the pulp out. And that's right. <laughs> Uh, so first off, <laughs> it is important to decide is that pulp noir, we often call it that pulp slash noir, but it's important to recognize that's a spectrum. Uh, so what I just described, cliff tops all the way to the pulp side, Calistan's all the way to the noir side. And part of it is to decide at the beginning, where are you falling on that scale? So pulp, you know, well, that's, as I said, if you're fighting on the lightning rail, let's also put a bomb in the train. You know, it's like, how can you add (laughs) something bigger to the scene that you're doing? Uh, Noir, a couple things I always call out. One of the things, uh, you know, in session zero, session zero is an important place to do this. Uh, One of the key things that I will ask in any type of campaign is what did your character do during the war? and or how did the war affect you? Uh, Did you fight in the war? If you didn't fight and you are, for example, a fighter, why didn't you fight and what were you doing instead? You know, did you lose something in the war? Among other things, one of the things you might have lost is your entire nation if you're from Sierra. So, you know, what did you do? How did it affect you? What did you lose? Those are all things to think about. The losing part especially comes for the noir story. For noir campaign, another thing I would always ask players is tell me something you regret. Like, what is the regret you're carrying around with you? And it's up to you. It could be small, uh, you know, or it could be big. And that's something I'm going to work into the campaign over time uh, because that's something that shapes your character because everybody's got something they regret. Uh, one of the things we have a table on rising of the last war that I just personally love. It was one of my favorite things to do, which is, uh, why do you need 200 gold pieces? And it's just, you know, purely optional and sort of like having a flaw. And it's like, oh, because there's a price on your head that you've got to pay off or because you had to hawk your magic sword and, you know, it's 200 gold pieces to get it back or, you know, and, and part of that idea of noir is that noir in particular is about essentially flawed heroes that your characters aren't perfect and again it's up to you to decide how far to go with that but you know having things like i have a regret then immediately gives you something to work on or saying i've got to pay off a 200 uh, gold piece loan to the bormar clan by the end of next month well okay Let's get, you know, let's get to work. <laughs> so those are all things I'd say. And those are all completely optional. You know, people might say, well, why would I want to essentially take on a debt for my character? And it's like, well, because it makes the story interesting. You also, know? gold doesn't matter in 5e anyway. It's fine. Uh, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> uh, I will say <laughs> something I do just running campaigns is I'm very big on collaborative storytelling. And I always like to bring the players into defining the, the area. I was running a campaign set in a small town in Kabara, and we, there was only one in in town. And so we went around the table and I said, well, you know, it's called the Cat and Biscuit. Tell me something uh, about it. And each player, one of them says, oh, they uh, brew their own beer. And we're like, great, yeah, best beer in town. And someone says, oh, they have uh, great acoustics and they have an open mic night every you know, Wednesday. And we're like, great, 
Sounds good. Oh, they make their own biscuits. What's a mic? Wonderful. And the last guy says (laughs) they don't have a working toilet and it stinks. And everybody was just, why did you do that to our adorable Anne? But that was what we went with. And and what I said is, well, it's going to cost you 200 gold pieces to get a cleansing stone, which is essentially a magic toilet. (laughs) And that became the big drive. And I remember at the end of the third adventure, one of the players saying, I love that even though there's clearly some kind of malefic cult in town, our main focus is buying a magic toilet you know (laughs) it's surprising what players priorities will be you know i once had a group that decided i know that you know icewind dale is under attack but you know what would be good is if we open up our own restaurant on a boat and we call it I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm not going to say it. It's the, it's the opposite this is a family-friendly show. Yeah, it's the opposite of the Hooters restaurant. That's what I will say. The opposite of the Hooters restaurant. Uh, I will just say I played in 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 uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden uh, with some of the members of the Decemberists, and uh, we actually also ended up basically buying up a lot of real estate uh every town we went through we would we would end up buying the abandoned inn or something like that and trying to set up a little uh set of sort of experiences along the way so i approve of you know some entrepreneurship it's it's that ferry in east haven it's just so tempting (laughs) yeah tyler and i's group uh we um adventure napped a barbarian brewer bought the inn and made her the brewmaster of the inn and then took our pet mummy and set the mummy to basically running the inn while Anbox brewed the beer. I, I think we had the mummy run a haunted house, actually. But nice. yeah. <laughs> that's, so, yeah. That's so good. Our, our server was actually three kobolds in a trench coat. Good call. <laughs> yeah. Good games. Good games. Uh, that campaign. <laughs> so we had some questions from our discord that we wanted to bring to you and so i'm thinking maybe we could rapid fire through some of these and we'd maybe take our time on some other ones um so i want to start with something really light and easy i want to say this question came from girdle rock do warforged have souls Warforged absolutely have souls because among the other things you can raise them from the dead uh the question is how do warforged have souls and where did they come from and as with many things in Eberron, this is one of the points where we haven't given an answer, but we've given possible answers. So one possibility is that Warforged souls are essentially ghosts, that they are in Eberron when you die, you go to Dolor, and in Dolor your memories fade away. And most of the religions believe that that's because your soul is actually passing on to a higher level of existence. You're not actually being wiped out, you're transitioning. But you end up with this husk left behind that has no memories. And one of the theories is that Warforged souls are husks from Dolor that are being sort of just pulled out and recycled. And so could they regain their original memories? You know, it's sort of like you are a a blank tape, but could we somehow get back what's been uh, put on it? Another theory is that they're something like actually the quarry from Dalquar, that it's all a sort of trick that uh, Warforged are a sort of Trojan horse. Uh, for, you know, sleeper agents that don't yet know that they could be activated. But the short form is, yes, Warforged have souls, but we don't know where they come from. Okay. Interesting. Solid. All right. I, I, I want to fire off another question. Uh, what do you think it would take 
for the nations to unite under a united government of Galifar. Okay, so first of all, I assume that what this question means is that there is no one ruler, that we're talking about a united nations. Uh, because if the answer is no one ruler, like what would it, because Galifar was a single kingdom with a king or at least a monarch. And so part of the point is uh, what it would take to restore Galifar, which is what the last war was fought about, is for everybody to agree on who's in charge. And that does not seem to be happening anytime soon. Uh, If you could make it happen in your campaign, good for you. Now, what (laughs) would be a different approach would be for all of the nations to agree that we are sort of reunifying while retaining our independence. And that's kind of what the Treaty of Thronehold is. Uh, The Code of of Galifar is largely, you know, we largely have a shared system of laws and we have peace. So, you know, that is kind of the situation that we're in now with the point that nations like the Shadow Marches and Droam aren't part of that alliance. So a little bit of each, you know, if you wanted to more firmly secure that peace, uh, part of the point is that's what some of the rulers like Caius want to do. Uh, whereas some of the others like Aurora, Arala think, no, 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 we need a single ruler. So, you know, that's sort of up to you whether that is possible or whether it's all doomed and will eventually collapse. I've got one that's not on the list. Uh, Are Warforged buoyant? No. Uh, Warforged have no... The the key fact is they have no benefit to swimming. So, therefore, uh, they react to water like other folks. Uh, We've certainly had... I've had a story where Warforged, they don't need to breathe. So, we've had stories of Warforged walking uh, under a lake so i tend to go that way that warforge will sink but they don't drown related to that a question that was asked uh can the wood inside of warforge rot or are the warforge barreling towards a particularly gruesome zombie-like existence the wood inside warforge can't rot as long as they're alive the basically warforge are inherently magical beings like golems you know that they're animated by a magical force and by and what has been said is uh you know they do have like essentially what amounts to a circulatory system of alchemical fluids uh the big point is that starting in third edition you can heal a warforged with a healing spell you know, not in third edition, it wasn't quite as effective, but it still worked. And so that is the point that the Warforge are alive. And so the wood in a Warforge is more like the wood in an actual tree, not the wood in a tree that's been cut down. And so they won't rot as long as they're alive. If they are killed, then the point is that magic dissipates, and then their components will start to corrupt. I have some cursed apple trees in my backyard right now. Uh, which are are both living, and also some of the wood is not doing well. I'm, uh, I, I say that to say I'm now imagining like walking with a fungicide. Like, well, <laughs> come here, come and, here. and that's a valid point. Is <laughs> someone could create a disease that's specifically a warforged disease, and that's fine. But it's just that's different from just saying warforge on the whole will just innately rot. It, it basically comes down to each individual warforge has its own circumstances. Yeah. But is there something, another question that was asked, uh, is there something that you would retcon if you could? Well, in terms of retconning, I mean, part of the point is that, uh, you know, I made Eberron with Wizards of the Coast. There's a lot of source books I didn't even work on. I will say that 
The thing I would change if I was starting it all again, if just from scratch, is I don't like the scope of history. Uh, in particular, the main civilization of Corvair, you know, Galifar, the five nations, before the last war, you have a thousand years of peace. And that is just very fantasy tropey and very boring. And I would make that <laughs> shorter and I would make it much more exciting. And in particular, part of the point of Eberron, the core idea when I first came up with it was essentially if we had arcane magic as it exists in uh, the principles exist in D&D in the Renaissance, if that's what we had instead of science, what does the world look like 300 years later? And so what I'm saying is I always with Eberron would have liked to have had a greater focus on what were the real turning points? What were the key discoveries? How has magic actually evolved? You know, if you went back 400 years ago, how would it be different? And that's something I feel that isn't really present in the setting. I'd just love to have done more with that. Yeah, well, I, here's what I'll say. A thousand years of peace, uh, according to the people who wrote the history books. That is very true. And one of the things I actually <laughs> do in uh, exploring Eberron is I have a little table of, here's a you know one from column A, one from column you know, B, the three-column uh, three table of uh, historical events that happened in that time period. So, like, you're in a village where you can quickly say, well, what happened here in 564? Oh, there was an uprising involving uh, wine or an air that became the basis for a popular song. Uh, you know, just to fill in the the blanks of all that time. It's like, for a thousand years, nothing happened. And then, yeah, no, obviously not, right? Um, I guess maybe the, the last one that I will toss out, unless there was something that the, the guys wanted to hit, um, Gonk says hi. Oh, great. Hi, Gon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keith, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Very glad to be here. So where can folks find you online? What's, uh, what's exciting these days? All right. Uh, so you can find me on most social media as uh, HellCowKeith. And um, my website is keith-baker.com. Uh, but my company is Together Studios. That's T-W-O, Together. Uh, and that's where you can find things like Phoenix Dawn Command, the role-playing game you know, I made, along with Illimath, the Adventure Zone Bureau of Balance, and links to all my uh, work on the DMs Guild. And then also I'm Keith Baker on Patreon, where, as I said, I'm running my monthly uh, threshold campaign, uh, and also people get early access to articles and such. Awesome. And we will put links in the show notes so folks can find those things from home. All right. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Okay, at this point, I have a laundry list of things that I want to hit in the after. One, I think Stubbins was the one who asked the, uh, the can the wood inside a Warforged rot, and I wanted to credit him for that right quick. Two, while I was getting ready for this, uh, I found, and, and Keith, I'm wondering if you know of this and if you know why this happened, in the credits page of, yeah. uh, so I have the the mm -hmm. deluxe cover for Eberron, uh, yeah. 
Disclaimer, published by the brilliant gnomes of House Civis, the illustrious volume exposes truths you won't believe about the last war. You might think that's enough to satisfy you, dear reader, but there's more! The book also contains dice-fueled rules for reenacting thrilling events in the world of Eberron, dice not included. Also, don't forget to recharge this book's magic with a dragon shard about once a week. If you don't, the book will turn back into a potato. Yep. <laughs> if you check all the the exploring Eberron and Chronicles have wacky disclaimers as well. Nice. Okay. Well, now, now you have to oh, collect them. I well, that, I, I never yeah. noticed it until <laughs> I, I don't even know why I I do not know why I read that, but it just caught my eye, and I'm like, I'm gonna ask. Uh, last yeah, question. As I say, check, check the, it's, it's just tradition. Check the, uh, now, as I say, 5th edition tradition. But if you check Chronicles and Exploring, they have disclaimers. That's what. Nice. I need to go find them. Love that. That's so okay, the last I one I wanted. I believe Chronicles is on loan from the Library of Ashtakala. And, uh, you know. Nice. <laughs> but anyhow, what else you got? Actually, I'm going to save one for all fair. Okay. <laughs> all right. So... So this is the part where Dan kills the recording. We all stare at the stare at the screen.